This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Hewlett-Packard Enterprise, a global technology leader providing customers with solutions to analyze, secure, and act upon their data seamlessly between every edge and any cloud. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On Friday, July 20th, the Washington Post gathered top cybersecurity policymakers and former high-level officials to talk about the latest developments in America's cyber battle with Russia and other adversaries for the Washington Post's Cybersecurity 202 Live. In this segment, the Washington Post's Ellen Nakashima interviews leaders from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence to discuss the most significant cyber threats, how government works with private industry to thwart attacks, and the use of new technologies like artificial intelligence. Let's listen. Good morning, everyone. I'm Ellen Nakashima. I'm a national security reporter with The Washington Post, and it's so great to see such a big crowd out here today. Uh, I'm moderating the first discussion about cyber detection, cyber threat detection and prevention. And then we've got several more great panels to really deepen the policy debate around how we protect the United States and our democracy against attacks through cyberspace from foreign adversaries. And I'm really delighted to introduce to you my two guests, because though they and their agencies are not generally in the headlines, what they do is so important. To my immediate left is Tanya Ugaretz. She's director of the Cyber Threat Intelligence Integration Center, or CTIC, at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. It's been around since 2015. And Tanya is a career FBI intelligence analyst who steeped in counterterrorism and cut her teeth in the days after 9-11 and her analyst teeth, and so much so that she became, in 2003, the first analyst to serve as the FBI director, then Robert Mueller, daily intelligence briefer. She was Mueller's daily intelligence briefer. So you know she's incredibly smart, and her background is so relevant to her current job, because she heads an organization that was modeled after the National Counterterrorism Center, or NCTC, which, as you know, was set up post 9-11 to address criticism that the intelligence community had missed uh, the, connecting the dots, the intelligence dots that might have thwarted the al-Qaeda attacks. So CTIC, which fuses uh, in streams of intelligence from across the government or intelligence dots on cyber threats, uh, provides assessments, including the all-important attribution or who was behind a cyber attack, who done it, to our policymakers. Next to, to Tanya is Jason Matheny. He's director of the, let me see if I can get this right, Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Activity, not agency activity, or IARPA. And I think of IARPA as sort of the DARPA of the intelligence community, where, you know, DARPA gave us the internet and stealth aircraft. IARPA is working on everything from face recognition to uh, keeping bioweapons out of the hands of bad guys to quantum computing. Mm -hmm. And the agency couldn't have, or 
activity, I should say, couldn't have found anyone more qualified or overqualified, I should say, to head it than Jason, as he has worked at the World Bank, Oxford University, Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory, the Center for Biosecurity, and Princeton University. And in his spare time, he co-founded not one, but two biotech companies. And because he clearly couldn't figure out what he wanted to do in life, he's got a doctorate in applied economics, a master's in public health, a master's in business administration, and a master's and a bachelor's from the University of Chicago. So Jason is a true renaissance man. <laughs> Dilettante. <Yeah. laughs> Sounds like he can't all the time. Before we begin, I'd like to let our audience in the room and watching online know that they can tweet their questions to our guests at hashtag 202Live. That's hashtag 202Live. And I'll try to get to some of your questions later in our conversation. So, what a week this has been in the world of cyber. Just last Friday, as you know, now Special Counselor Mueller uh, indicted 12 Russian military officers for hacking into the Democratic National Convention in 2016 and uh, releasing the stolen emails in an effort to influence the election. That same day, Director of National Intelligence Dan Coats, Tanya and Jason's boss, warned that the system is, quote, blinking red, just as it was in the months prior to 9-11. Only this time, he said, it's our digital infrastructure that's under attack. And he also warned that Russia was the most aggressive foreign adversary in cyberspace. So spell it out for us, Tanya. As the integrator of threats from across the spectrum, what are you seeing Russia do? Does it pose a cybersecurity threat to the integrity of our midterm elections? Are you seeing activity there? Thank you, Ellen, and thank you to the Washington Post for the opportunity to speak here today. I think in 2001, when the CIA director used the term, the system is blinking red, it was to get attention. Um, at that time, it was to get the attention of our, to, of our policy makers, that there were significant threats we were seeing in the counterterrorism space. Director Coates, in his uh, address to the Hudson Institute last week, used similar terminology, again, to get our attention. Uh, but in this case, it's not the intention of our policymakers. That's already very highly focused on cyber threats. I think you hear it in the worldwide threat assessment that the DNI has given the past few years in which cyber threats lead as the number one year over year. You heard it in the remarks of Director Ray, Secretary Nielsen, the Deputy Attorney General uh, this week. And so we're very much focused on cyber threats. With regards to Russia, um, I agree uh, with the DNI and others' characterization that they are the most aggressive foreign actor that we see in cyberspace. There's, for good reason, a lot of focus on their activity uh, in 2016 against our election infrastructure and uh, their malign influence efforts. But I think it's important to widen our view and to also look at the other public announcements uh, that DHS, the FBI, and the administration have made just this year about Russia's cyber efforts against the US and against our allies. Uh, the NotPetya attack. Uh, this was malware that infiltrated a Ukrainian accounting software system and manipulated the way that the company pushed updates to its customers so that instead of getting your normal software update that we all click yes to on our computers, it downloaded malware instead. According to the administration's statement, 
That was the single most destructive and costly cyber attack in history. We also saw DHS and FBI this year issue a technical alert so that defenders could protect against Russian activity in our critical infrastructure systems. Uh, this described Russian cyber actors' efforts to infiltrate and conduct intrusions into different sectors of our critical infrastructure, including energy and water and manufacturing. So the aggression is widespread. It's against multiple sectors. It's against multiple types of networks. And so I think that call to attention that you heard the DNI give, mm -hmm. um, as I said, it wasn't just aimed at the government. It was really aimed at all of us. Um, because it really does require not only a whole of government, but a whole of country effort to be aware of what we're facing and to combat it. Okay, I, I want to get back to that, but I, I want to let um, Jason come in here for a second. Um, Jason, your agency does over the horizon research. Uh, you're focused more on what's coming than rather what's in the here and now. So give us a sort of a, a cyber weather forecast on what you see as shaping mm -hmm. up to be the most significant threat of the future and what are you doing to counter it? Yeah, so so one of the uh, trends in cybersecurity is something that's, um, that's sort of boring, uh, which is that 70 to 80 percent of the attacks, both from state actors and from cyber criminals, um, are social engineering attacks. They're really attacks that are meant to manipulate the behavior of users. Um, the most common form of a social engineering attack is phishing. So somebody sends you an email, tries to get you to click on a link uh, that then gets malware in your machine. Uh, so that's a boring problem. Uh, it's not technically you know, very interesting, uh, but it's enormously costly and represents um, by far the largest share of the kinds of attacks that we have to deal with. Um, on the technology side, looking at the horizon, so the next five to 10 years, uh, both defenses and the threats themselves in social engineering attacks are becoming more sophisticated thanks to advances in machine learning. Uh, so one type of advance is that uh, we can develop better filters for being able to recognize uh, a phishing email. And you already see internet providers start to, to use this. So if you're checking Gmail and you'll see a little warning message that says this email looks like a scam, uh, that's because there's a filter that's been trained on a bunch of training examples, examples of real phishing attacks, and they've trained a machine learning system to recognize what those look like. But there's now an arms race because the people who are developing phishing attacks are also using machine learning in order to figure out ways of making more subtle phishing emails that uh, bypass those filters. I think what we're going to see is a much greater uh, degree of sophistication and the machine learning that's applied to this so that every day you're going to see a significant advance on both the offense and the defense happening really at machine speeds uh, so that uh, the cyber actors can in a way create industrial scale phishing attacks such that they automatically generate uh, these phishing emails in very large numbers the internet companies will need to be developing defenses that are just as fast and just as scalable. Uh, that's right now, I think, what we consider one of the hardest problems in cybersecurity. That's scary. Do you think the companies can de develop these defensive fast enough and powerful enough to, to counter the offense? I think, I think so. There's a, there's a longstanding debate in cybersecurity uh, theory about whether there's offense or defense dominance uh, in cyber. Mm -hmm. um, that is, is it inherently harder to defend a system 
than it is to attack it. Um, and we don't think so. We think that, in fact, the advantage goes to whoever assembles the largest number of, of training data, uh, so examples of, say, phishing emails. Um, if the defenders were willing, um, either due to uh, policy or culture, uh, to share more training examples, they could create much more training data uh, than the attackers could. Uh, so if Google and Microsoft and others, Apple, uh, pooled their training data sets of phishing attacks, they would have a much larger training data set than any attacker would, and they could create then more robust defenses more quickly than attackers can. Oh, interesting. So that's a challenge to uh, all the tech companies out there to try to start pooling their data, and uh, they'll also have to do so in a way that doesn't, I guess, raise privacy concerns and issues. Right. You have to get that at a different panel. So, Tanya, news broke last night that the Justice Department has a new policy uh, to disclose the existence of uh, influence operations or information warfare attacks against the political processes of the United States when the uh, intelligence community is, has high confidence that the, of, of the foreign actor behind it and is um, also uh, fairly confident that it won't blow sources and methods. Um, obviously, this is, a, is, is an issue that is very much in the forefront today as we are very concerned about whether Russia will seek to uh, interfere and meddle in the midterm elections through hacking and disinformation. Uh, what do you think, first of all, of this idea? And second, what role would CTIC play in uh, integrating the intelligence that might feed this decision to disclose? Mm -hmm. Thank you. So um, I think that decision to publicly name and disclose when mm -hmm. there are malign influence efforts is very much in line with what I was just describing mm -hmm. and what uh, the DNI was advocating in terms of thinking about the American public, mm -hmm. uh, US companies, the private sector, as uh, customers of the U.S. government. Um, as an intelligence analyst, we're always taught to think, number one, about who our customer is. And often that's a senior policymaker. It's an, usually another agency within the federal government. But increasingly, we have to be thinking more broadly. The U.S. government does not have the monopoly on intelligence when it comes to cybersecurity. <laughs> Uh, there is a very robust uh, cybersecurity industry in the private sector, and we need to look at new ways of partnering with them, feeding their information into what we see uh, from classified intelligence sources so that we can create a holistic picture of the threats that we seek. So I think the more that we can create a dialogue and mechanisms for sharing information between government and private sector, back in the other direction, as well as with the American public, notify victims, uh, whether they're the victim of a cyber intrusion or a malign influence campaign. Mm -hmm. um, I think that will help all of us uh, be better able to play defense against some of these efforts. Did CTIC play any role in uh, infusing the various streams of intelligence about the Russian hacking related to the 2016 election? Yes, so I appreciated your comparison to NCTC. It's a very kind one. Um, I'll mention uh, CTIC is much, much, much smaller <laughs> than NCTC because we have a bit of a different mission. Um, our personnel number in the dozens, and we're a multi-agency workforce, which means that about 80% of that several dozen people who I lead uh, come to us from other agencies. 
CIA, NSA, FBI, Department of Energy, mm -hmm. et cetera. And so that is what really positions us to integrate all of the different streams of information and intelligence that we're seeing across the interagency. So in the 2016 case, and even currently, uh, our main focus is on creating situational awareness of the current threats that we're seeing. That means weeding through an awful lot of information and answering the question, what do our decision makers most need to pay attention to? Mm. And that involves contextualizing it, mm. putting it in context so that we know where does this fit in with the bigger picture of threats we're tracking. How, how much did you put the Russian hacking of, say, the Democratic National Committee or other um, parties in 2016 in, into the forefront of policymakers' decision-making? So we were certainly featuring that in our situational mm -hmm. awareness products as it was unfolding. Uh, we're also present Early at, on, you say? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. Uh, in fact, uh, CTIC became official uh, in December 2015. That was when we first stood up. And so we were kind of present for the, the cycle yeah. of what occurred in 2016, and we were very much involved in highlighting intelligence that the interagency saw on that matter. Uh, we also uh, play a very privileged role of participating weekly in uh, meetings that are led by the National Security Council, in which all the departments and agencies that are involved in cybersecurity gather around a table and discuss what are the current threats and what are we doing uh, in response to those. And um, I'm privileged each week to yeah. lead that meeting with an intelligence briefing that helps uh, form the basis for that discussion. Forgive me for coming back to it, but I'm, I'm so, I was so interested in this because back in 2016, early on, maybe in June, by June, certainly May, June, I know the FBI was very confident that Russia, GRU, the GRU was behind the hack. Yet it wasn't until October, October 7th, that the, uh, the DNI and the Homeland Security Secretary actually made their public attribution. Why did it take so long? So public attribution and other response options are always a policy decision. Uh, the intelligence community is charged with, as DNI Coates put it the other day, seeking the truth and then speaking the truth. We provide the best intelligence we have at the point of time that we have it. Um, despite what you might think, uh, the popular notion of uh, CSI cyber and how it really works, it's often not the instant that something happens. We often learn details of activity later, out of order, in bits and pieces, and then part of the job of an integration center like CTIC is to pull all of that together. Um, so again, the, the decision, the unprecedented decision to issue uh, a public statement regarding the activity that we saw, uh, that's ultimately for the policymakers to make. And, and if the policy that the Justice Department announced last night were in place, had been in place then, and, uh, and so maybe the government might have made their attribution statement earlier, mm -hmm. do, you, do you think it would have made a difference, Jason, Tanya, in I, body politic? I think it's hard to say. I try to avoid speaking in hypotheticals, but I'm really heartened to see uh, the steps that many agencies are taking to apply the lessons learned um, and what we've learned from an intelligence standpoint about how our adversaries are using cyber means to achieve their strategic objectives because that's really what it's all about. It's not just about cyber. It's not just about malign influence. It's that 
whole tool set that our adversaries are using to achieve their objectives. Right. Um, now, Jason, Tanif Center, CTIC, doesn't focus on information warfare attacks against um, social media from things like Russian bots uh, or automated software that generates tweets that might stoke social divisions, but is IARPA doing any research or con um, conducting any projects in this area that might be relevant to detecting and thwarting such assaults? Uh, yeah, we have, um, and uh, in a few different areas. So uh, one is uh, we've had a research program, a piece of which is to understand, can you detect bots uh, that, are, uh, that are in social media accounts? Um, uh, can you detect uh, sock puppets, uh, which are you know manipulated accounts uh, that are being used uh, to express certain uh, opinions or judgments. Can you can you detect those automatically? Since it's this is um, uh, there's so many such accounts, it really is impractical to do it using human analysts. Mm. Uh, we've also done work in looking at manipulation of shared databases like Wikipedia. So can you detect when somebody is manipulating Wikipedia pages through malicious edits that are intended? Uh, to be part of a disinformation campaign. Uh, you can. Um, now, it depends um, on the individual page and the topic how long a malicious edit is going to stick around. <laughs> and Wikipedia is, is pretty uh, rigorous in the way that it establishes uh, forms of control and protection to prevent uh, high-frequency malicious edits. Uh, but it's, it's something that I think will require continual defense. And that's that's another um, whole domain in which uh, cybersecurity and information security more broadly is really important. Um, a third area is, is trying to understand more about uh, Russian uh, disinformation. Uh, and domestically within Russia, the primary means of disinformation is, is less censorship and more overloading uh, the media and social media accounts uh, with um, engineered data. Uh, so much broader use of, of sock puppets than censorship, uh, which is in contrast, I would say, to China, for example, which, in which the censorship is very highly engineered, uh, also heavily automated through sets of you know, censored keywords that trigger uh, a censorship event. Uh, in Russia, we see much more emphasis instead on simply creating a huge volume of controlled information, uh, much of it disinformation in order to drown out the genuine data. Hmm. Uh, so that's, that's another area where um, we need to continually develop tools to detect that kind of disinformation. Is information warfare something the United States should contemplate using against its own adversaries to achieve its own strategic goals in any way? Uh, or, or is it just uh, too much of a, an ethical and moral uh, you know, minefield there? Well, uh, I'm, I can't take the policy perspective on this, but from the technological <laughs> perspective, um, I think that focusing on defense makes a lot of sense, um, in part because um, if, we can, if we can build up the body of data of a variety of different disinformation campaigns that we've seen historically, uh, particularly in, in new social media uh, domains, um, then we really have a, a perch from which to develop robust defenses. Part of this is a hard social science problem, which is, in general, um, as citizens, we need to be more skeptical about information that we see on social media. Mm -hmm. So the same advice that you're probably giving to your kids 
uh, about just treating any information that they see um, on their social media accounts with some degree of cynicism. Um, we, as a, as a general citizenry, also need to um, have that same level of skepticism. Um, that's a, a really hard social science problem. How do you, right. and, and we face the same thing in cybersecurity. How do you get individual users to be more skeptical about the emails and links that they're receiving? How do we get people to be more skeptical about the uh, information streams that they see in social media? So there's that social science problem. There's the technological problem, which is to what extent can we detect when a disinformation campaign is happening um, with, that's sort of breaking from the normal conduct of discourse and debate uh, within these forums. Uh, we've done work on this. DARPA has done work on this. We're seeing now many of the social media companies doing their own research on this. It is a really hard problem, but I think it's tractable. Fascinating. Now, I, I don't want to let uh, this panel go without Tanya, without you telling us about, uh, I think, what is perhaps your greatest your center's greatest success story, uh, which is attribution of WannaCry. You mentioned not Petya, which was uh, attributed to Russia, but WannaCry was also another huge cyber event, right? I think it affected more than 300,000 computers in over 150 countries. It sort of uh, jammed up the National Health Service in Britain. Mm -hmm. Tell us about what your role was, your agency, your center's role in gaining attribution, and why was it such a success? Sure. So as you described, uh, WannaCry um, truly was a massive global ransomware attack. Last and year. Right? Last year, yes, yeah. in May of last year, um, in which North Korean cyber actors uh, used malware uh, to essentially brick uh, computers worldwide, hold them for ransom, um, and used uh, uh, basically took advantage of a known vulnerability in order to do that. Um, I mentioned CTIC size uh, and the difference in our role between NCTCs, and that's because we're, we're very much in a support role. Uh, our aim, in addition to integrating information, um, is kind of bridging the seams across uh, the federal cyber community, the intelligence community, network defenders, incident responders, law enforcement, and helping information move across those uh, various parts of our cyber community. Um, and that's very much what we did here. Uh, I mentioned we're multi-agency uh, through our uh, work with DHS. Um, in those first days when WannaCry was hitting over a weekend, like most attacks seem to do, uh, we were aware of information that DHS had gleaned through their great partnerships with the private sector. So as the network service providers were working on mitigating the attack, trying to shut it down, they were also learning information about how it had first formed. Um, think about uh, a, a medical type of infection where it's very important to know how it got started so you know how to stop it. Well, in this case, as private sector companies were learning how WannaCry had spread, they were able to gather data uh, that showed that those early infection points. Uh, DHS had that by virtue of their private sector relationships, and we asked, could we share that with the intelligence community because we think it could be valuable. DHS went back to the private sector partner, got their permission, we shared it with the intel community, uh, and it helped give us a sense uh, early on about how the infection had spread. And the intelligence community was able to come to a fairly quick assessment, but with low to moderate confidence, that it was North Korean cyber actors behind the attack. Um, but then, collectively, we just kind of weren't satisfied with that. 
uh, private sector cybersecurity researchers felt really confident it was North Korea. And it's, it's important to uh, establish high confidence in these um, types of attributions so that we potentially position our policymakers uh, to consider response options. So uh, we and other colleagues in the Office of the Director of National Intelligence gathered analysts from around the community and said, let's relook at everything we have and let's see if we can't make additional progress on this attribution. And we relooked at that data that came from the private sector and I think realized what we had. Hmm. Some of our partners in the interagency were then able to take that, do additional work, and ultimately acquired kind of that last bit of information that helped us say with high confidence that it was North Korea behind that attack. So I point to that as a su success story, not because CTIC did the attribution or we, you know, you'll ever see a piece of paper with our seal on it that uh, tied it all together. The importance was having the relationships and the trust to be able to go to different partners and say, this part of the community needs this piece of information that another part has. And also to be that kind of nudge to the community. Um, it's, there's so much happening, as you saw just this week. And it's so easy to move on to the next thing. Um, but we try to be that small, neutral voice in the middle um, that helps bring folks back to um, and move forward and make progress on issues like that. Fantastic. Um, so on that note, unfortunately, I think that's all the time we have, but this in just a, such a short time, we've covered so much ground and you've tell, told the, I think the public here some things that both of you that we, we never knew and that hopefully can help us uh, find better ways to, to counter the whole, in the whole of country approach, better ways to counter cyber attacks from foreign adversaries. Uh, so let's give uh, Dr. Tonya Ugaretz and Dr. Jason Matheny a big round of applause, and we'll move on to the next portion of our program. Thank you. Thanks, Helen. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.